in a little bit. All right. Okay, so this week um, I saw a really, really clever advertisement for a dentist. Okay. All right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get get our Dan, our fearless uh, tech man, Dan, the fearless tech man back there. Uh, go ahead and throw that. Go ahead and throw that advertisement up there. Did you guys see it? How many of you saw the tooth first? How many of you see what else is wrong with this picture? The eyebrow. How many of you saw the eyebrow first? No one. Okay. All right. Y'all are fuddy duddies. I'm telling you, I saw this on Instagram. I was scrolling through and I literally laughed out loud. I literally lulled. Okay. So if you ever wonder, I'm easily entertained apparently, but I got the biggest kick out of this. Because I was like, how did I miss that? And once you see the eyebrow, you can't unsee it. But then I was sort of like, how did I miss that? It's so obvious. And then it's kind of like that image of him just will not get out of your head. It will, it, you're, I'm, I'm sorry, but you'll be seeing that over lunch today and tonight as you go to bed. But anyhow, um, it made me think about this phrase that my dad, my dad wasn't like one of these, you know, he's a very wise person, you know, in his own way, but, but he didn't really expound on, on wisdom, right? Like he's just sort of like, he just said what he thought. And, but one of the, one of the, the things of wisdom that I always remember my dad always saying was we see what we want to see. And it's sort of like, well, I didn't see it. Well, cause we see what we want to see. And that's such a powerful axiom because a lot of times we only focus on what we want to see or what others work really hard for us to see. Think about it, right? A couple months ago, we talked about the power of advertising and, and things like that, how billions and billions of dollars are spent to manipulate and to con control our perception and what we see. We have to look harder to see what we really need to see. Last week, we looked about how people uh, were naturally tempted to look at the outside instead of the inside, right? And, and if you haven't been here, you can go online and listen so that we've been doing a deep dive in Matthew this year. Uh, but this morning, we're going to see how so many people just simply miss the whole point altogether. Instead of even looking at the outside instead of the inside, like we miss the whole point altogether. We're going we're gonna to dig right in this morning because it's kind of a longer passage, but we're going to dive in here in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 29 through 31. Jesus returned to the Sea of Galilee and climbed a hill and sat down. Now, what's interesting is that we hear sit down and we think, okay, he's done. Actually, sitting down, when a rabbi sat down, that means everybody was like, oh, shh, he's going to start to teach. Because when rabbis sat down, that's when the official teaching began. A vast crowd brought to him people who were lame, blind, crippled, those who couldn't speak, and many others. They laid them before Jesus, and he healed them all. The crowd was amazed. Those who hadn't been able to speak were talking. The crippled were made well. The lame were walking and the blind could see again. And they praised the God of Israel. This is incredible. It's kind of easy because this is kind of in between passages. And it's kind of like, yeah, Jesus did all these cool things. But I love how they literally said the, 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 the people who couldn't speak were talking. The people who couldn't walk were walking. Like, Jesus was transforming lives in front of their faces, in front of their eyes. Now, if it's kind of easy to, to miss a little thing that Matthew did here in his telling, 
is it said the people brought their loved ones and laid them at Jesus's feet. What does that remind us of from last week? The Gentile woman who brought, who, who literally she bowed, she threw herself at the feet of Jesus on behalf of her daughter who was possessed by a demon, right? And so, so here we get again, see people surrendering their lives, their loved ones out of sacrifice to Jesus. This is huge. Then in verses 32 through 39, once again, it says that Jesus felt pity or Jesus felt compassion. Again, this is what he did with the 5,000. They're out in the countryside and, and they're listening to him and they're, they're having all these miracles happening. But what do you do with 4,000? Well, actually it says 4,000 men. So we're talking probably what, 12 to 16 plus thousand people who are hungry. And so once again, how much food do we have? They said we have seven loaves and a few small fish. And we were talking little anchovy things, right? And so once again, Jesus is kind of like, let's, let's have some fun again. Let's feed the mold. Like 15 to 20,000 people with just a handful of food because he feels compassion for them. Now we might say, why, why, did, why does this story, because he just did this previously, what's the difference? Where is he at? Who's he doing this with? Who is he healing? Who is he delivering? Who is he feeding? The 5,000 was on the Jewish side. Now we're on the Gentile side. Jesus demonstrates in front of us that, yes, I'm here for the Jewish people, the promised people of Israel, right? But I'm also here for the outcast, unreligious Gentiles. He does the very same things for the Gentiles as he just did for the chosen people of God, quote-unquote chosen people of God, right? So we ha- we, it, this whole passage reveals Jesus' heart for the outcast. Then we go to chapter 16, verse 1. One day the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Okay, again, they come out of the woodwork to come and get Jesus. And they're saying, show us a sign. He's just been healing on both sides of the lake. He's just been performing miracles, feeding people on both sides of the lake. It's sign after sign after sign. But what's interesting is they already have their signs. They already know. They're not there to change their minds. If you, if you look at it, they're there to try to get Jesus to mess up, to turn the crowds against him. They're kind of like, keep on doing more stuff. Maybe then he'll screw up. Maybe then we can get him into our snare. They're trying to entrap him, right? What's also interesting is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even though they were both religious leaders within the same religion, they were diametrically opposed to each other. They disagreed on everything. The Sadducees didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in life after life on here on earth, right? But there's something about their unified hatred of Jesus that brought them together, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. They came together against Jesus. They were constantly fighting each other until Jesus unified them against him, right? There's so many different nuances here that's so easy to skip over when we, when we read these things, but we have to see their true heart. They were like, if we can get together, maybe then we can defeat Jesus. Let's stop fighting against each other so that we can go against Jesus. Like I said, they were trying to get Jesus to mess up so that people would turn against him. Verses two through four. He replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. 
Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign I will give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. Okay, a couple things here. First of all, he says, you know how to read the almanac, right? Like you can, you can read the signs of the weather and you kind of know what the weather is going to be, but you're, spir- you're, you're quote unquote spiritual leaders, but you can't read the spiritual signs. They're only seeing what they want to see. They have a, a huge body of evidence in front of them, but all they can see is how they want to attack Jesus. And so he says, I'm not going to play into your game. I'm not, I'm not your little monkey. I'm not going to dance for you, right? Like, he says, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Now, what does that mean? Well, two things. One, Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days. Belly of a big fish, right? And, and then after three days, what? He was released. Jesus is predicting how he would be killed, buried in a tomb, in the belly, right, for three days, and then he would be resurrected. He says, Jonah was just a prelude to what I was going to do. And so when this happens, you're going to remember, oh yeah, just like he said, he would be dead for three days and then he would come back to life. The other thing here too is who did Jonah go speak to? Who did God call Jonah to go preach the gospel to? Well, the gospel, the, the message of God at that time, right? The evil horrible, hated Ninevites, the dirty, the unchosen, the, 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 the outcast, the never has, never will be's. And Jonah was called to go preach God to them, and they repented, much to Jonah's chagrin. However, Jesus, as the perfect evangelist, goes to the dreaded, hated Gentiles, and he shares the gospel with them, And sure enough, we see, fast forward through the New Testament, we see tons and tons of them repent. Well, if you're the chosen people and you want to hold on to that for yourself, you don't want the outside, the outcast, the nobodies to get that as well. That's especially for you, right? And so he says, I'm not going to play your game. This is what it's all about, the sign of Jonah. Okay, then verses 5 through 12. It says, later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered that they had forgotten to bring any bread. (laughs) Again, (laughs) right? Like like they had just had Jesus perform the miracle of taking loaves of bread. And and maybe at this point, they're just forgetful. Maybe they're just kind of like, let's see if he does it again. Don't bring the bread. See if Jesus will give us more bread, right? We don't know, but they forgot about it. So then in verse six, Jesus says, watch out. Jesus warned them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What's interesting in Mark, in Mark's telling of it, he says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now there's some things to unpack there because it's not just religious legalism. It's also other cultural things, right? We've talked about Herod. Herod was a bad, bad dude. He was a government leader, but he was corrupt. He used religion to get what he wanted. He used government to get what he wanted. It was just a big dumpster fire, right? And so Jesus says, be careful of this yeast. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, you have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about not having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with the five loaves 
and the baskets of leftovers you picked up, or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves, and the large baskets of leftover you picked up, why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again, I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12, then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast in bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, they were so preoccupied by their immediate physical needs that they were oblivious to what Jesus was saying. They were so hungry and they were so worried about were they going to get enough food to eat that they they forget about, well, what would Jesus be meaning by the yeast of the Pharisees? Where they say, like, don't go buy bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. Is that what he's talking about? And and so they they miss it. I mean, think about it, right? When Jesus was was voluntarily going into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights, Satan came to him in his hunger. Because when we are hungry, whether it be physically, emotionally, relationally, financially, mentally, anything, right? In our hunger, when we're having those hunger pains, whatever they might be, that's when we're the most susceptible to temptation. To find alternatives, to find imitations that promise to fulfill those needs. And so Jesus challenges them to be careful what they try to fill their hunger with. And he's specifically uh, talking about the deceptive teaching of the religious leaders of the day. Now, the thing about yeast is that it literally only takes an almost untraceable amount of this little powder to completely alter the entire batch of bread. I mean, think about that. Just a little bit of yeast. We couldn't even see it with our eyes. If just a little bit will literally go and change the, the entire batch of dough. And so I love how he talks about how be careful because it might not seem like a whole lot, but if we're not careful, careful, even an untraceable amount can corrupt and alter the entire batch. Uh, Paul talks about that in his letter to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. Now, what's interesting is that the New Testament is full of warnings against yeast, right? The legalists, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Gnostics, the Nicolaitans, the Judaizers. I mean, all the way through the New Testament, there's all these different groups that try to latch on to Christianity, the, the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, and to corrupt the gospel to, to make it more profitable for themselves. Did you know that currently there's over 10,000 cults in the world? 10,000 cults, over half are in the United States of America. We have a great nation, but I'm telling you, when we start looking at the stats worldwide of what's going on in our great nation, it's gut-wrenching. It's awful. We are a hungry people who have more than any other nation in the history of the world, and yet we have this insatiable hunger for more, 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 and we make ourselves more vulnerable to the corruption that is all out there. And we are more, we're more vulnerable to what Satan wants to do to corrupt the gospel of Jesus. We have to be smart, and we have to be careful. Verses 13 and 14, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, right? So Jesus kind of tests his, his disciples again. It's like, you've been walking with me for almost three years now. You guys have watched me. You know me. Are you getting it? Are you seeing what you need to see in me? 
And so he says, okay, I want to test you. What are the people around you? Do we have a, do we have a, 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 a touch on the pulse of, of our context, right? And so they say, hey, people recognize you can do miracles. You're, you're this incredible figure. Maybe you're like John the Baptist, Old Testament prophets. Maybe you've died and you've come back, right? And you're, and like, you're a prophet. Wow, way to go, Jesus. You're a prophet. But then he takes it further and he says, okay, in verse 15, but who do you say I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the one who we've been promised for generations and generations. You're the one we've been, you are the only thing that will satisfy the hunger that is inside of us, right? And I love how he says, who do you say? And Simon Peter seems to get it. Verses 17, uh, 18 and 19, Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. So he basically says, understanding, seeing who Jesus really is, his actual identity, only comes from God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit three in one that are working in unison together to reveal who God really is, who we really are, what Jesus came to do, what this is all about. And so Simon Peter seems to get it. And it only comes from God. Verse 18, now I say to you, um, say that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, uh, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Now, there's a lot going on here. And there's a lot of, of interpretations about this. Some are credible. Others are pretty extraordinary. Um, but this is basically what happens. Is when Jesus meets us, he renames us. You look, Abram. Abram was just this, this guy who didn't know God. He had idols. He was just practicing life just like everybody else was at that, time, that, that day and time. But then when God calls him, he renames him Abraham, right? Sarah, or Sarai gets renamed to Sarah. You look at um, uh, who else gets, gets renamed um, Jacob. Jacob, you're Isra- you, you wrestle with God. So I'm going to na- rename you Israel. Do you know that Israel means he who wrestles with God? To know God is to wrestle with God. It's not just make my life better, God. It's I'm going through the muck with you, and I'm going to wrestle with you. That's what it means to know God, and God renames him that. And so with, with Simon being renamed Peter, Peter means rock. Now, let's, let's look at what's going on here. Jesus is the builder, This is not Peter's church. By saying that he's the rock and it's built on top of him doesn't mean that Peter is the church. It means that Jesus is the builder. This is Jesus' church. It's not Peter's church. It's not the disciples' church. It's not our church. It's not, this is Jesus' church. He is the builder. He's the one who built it. Who's the cornerstone? The scripture says Jesus is the cornerstone. And it also goes further and says he's the cornerstone that the Old Testament builders, the religious elitists, were rejecting Jesus as the cornerstone. Will you be useful for what we want in our church? Uh, 
you're kind of disruptive, Jesus, so we're going to have to either, either get rid of you or we're going to have to change you to fit into how we want to build our church. Jesus is the builder. Jesus is the cornerstone. If you know anything about the construction of that day and time, the cornerstone was the first one that is laid, and it's in a corner because everything else is built off of that cornerstone. Not only linearly, but as things are built up, it all relies on that cornerstone. So to say that Jesus is the rock means he's literally the rock that's first placed next to the cornerstone. And yes, he's the first of many rocks to be laid. And after him, there's going to be others built on top of that, right? And so Peter was the first one to really see, oh, Jesus, you're actually the incarnational presence of God. Come into your creation to die for our sins. He understands it. And so Jesus gives him some prestige of saying, hey, congrats, you're the first rock that I'm going to put into place as I build my church. Then he goes on and he says, I'm going to give you authority. These are keys, right? He says, we, I give you the authority that is more than just how to run a structure, a program, an organization, right? There is spiritual authority to this. And it goes to Peter and it goes to the church that Jesus is building. Matthew is the only one when he says church, it comes from the, the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia literally means a group of people that are called out to gather to worship, to teach, and to deliberate. This was a secular term that Jesus takes for his own use so that people can understand, oh, I get it. We're just like that group, but we're about Jesus, right? And so he says, I give my ecclesia, my called out family of citizens who are called to gather, to worship, and teach, and deliberate together, I give you authority. And that authority has spiritual ramifications, like the world would not prevail, Satan would not prevail against that gathering, that family, right? He's called them, he's equipped them, he's empowered them, he's sent them, he's released them. Then in verse 20, it says, Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So what's crazy is we have this huge, like, eye-opening experience of saying, Oh, this is who Jesus is. But he says, Yeah, but don't tell anybody. Why? Most scholars believe, because even though the disciples understood it, everybody else was still going to say, oh, then he can lead our army, right? They were looking for a military leader to overthrow the Roman government because that's what they wanted. They wanted to go back to the good old days, the way they, things were. Just let us have our buildings, let us have our organizations, let us have our practices, let us do it in peace, right? And Jesus comes and he disrupts that. And he says, no, 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 no. I am here to do something completely different. I'm going to build on that foundation, but it's going to look totally different from what you think. And so Jesus is concerned. He doesn't want them to go out and get everybody rallied around their idea, what they see, what they think they need, right? I think we have to be very careful when people see what they think is value in us for their cause. I, I hate to say this, but I've experienced this in my life where people are like, they try to be chum-chum because they want to get me to endorse what they're wanting instead of listening to the actual gospel that I'm teaching. I experienced that a fair amount, actually. Um, and we have to be careful of that. And Jesus is kind of like, don't try to use me for what you want me for. I am the king. I am the builder. I am the cornerstone. At best, your rocks that I put 
in my building, right? I mean, I know that sounds brutal, but at the same time, only Jesus is Lord and Savior. Only Jesus is Messiah. Verse 21, from then on, from then on, this is a turning point. It literally is, is Jesus from that point on sets his eyes to Jerusalem. He began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Okay, from that point on, it's a turning point. And then it says he starts to tell them. The actual Greek word here is actually show. He's demonstrating to them. What that word show means to open the eyes to, to give evidence and proof of. There is a major turning point in this verse 21. Because they're thinking, hey, this is going to be fun. Let's go see what this is. But then all of a sudden he says, remember the sign of Jonah? I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be accused. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be murdered. And I'm going to be buried. And you're going to think this is all over. But don't give up faith. Because I know what I'm doing here. I came as the ultimate sacrifice. And that sacrifice requires death. And I'm going to provide that. And he, he shows them. He opens their eyes to that. Verse 23, uh, sorry, verse 22. But Peter, Peter uh, took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Peter, you were so close. <laughs> you saw that he was the Messiah. You knew in the Old Testament prophecies what that, what, what that was going to require. But now you're saying God will not allow it. He will not allow you to be all these things happen, right? Peter's still seeing what he wants to see instead of opening his eyes to what Jesus is saying. Sometimes those old things within us die hard. We want what we want, so we see what we want to see. We want to use Jesus to get what we want instead of just com completely like these Gentiles laying our lives at the foot of Jesus. He still misses it. Verse 23, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. I never want to hear that from Jesus. That, that's terrifying. Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. You see, Peter was still operating through the lens of security, safety, comfort, prosperity, more, 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 me, 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 sovereignty of self. Jesus shows how important it is to be aware of the influences around us, right? He's, he's, yes, he says, get behind me, Satan, and blah, 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 but he's really meaning the satanic influences that want to infiltrate our minds, our hearts of comfort and safety and security. Um, Jesus clarifies then in verses 24 through the rest of the chapter says then jesus said to his disciples if any of you wants to be my follower you must give up your own way take up your cross and follow me if you try to hang on to your life you will lose it but if you give up your life for my sake you will save it and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul is anything worth more than your soul 
For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing right here will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. To follow Jesus means that we follow Jesus. We don't just pray a prayer and then just say, okay, what are you going to do for me, Jesus? No, we literally abandon ourselves and we follow him completely. No turning back, right? We are about Jesus. Now, that sounds awful. That sounds terrible, right? If, if, you, don't, if you don't love Jesus, you're probably sitting here, Jason, you're sounding like craziness right now. You're telling people to abandon themselves, to abandon this. You're right, it sounds awful. If Jesus isn't the goodness of God, then yeah, it is awful. If this is a human being that's saying, hey, give up your life for me, follow me, give this to this organization, give this to this, give this to that, then yeah, run the other way. But this is the sovereign creator of all things who loves his own creation and is coming to sacrifice for it. And then he says, follow me no matter what. There's a very powerful quote from Life Application Study Bible that says this, real discipleship implies real commitment, pledging our whole existence to his service. If we try to save our physical life from death, pain, or discomfort, we may risk losing eternal life. If we protect ourselves from the pain God calls us to suffer, we begin to die spiritually and emotionally. Our lives turn inward and we lose our intended purpose. When we give our life in service to Christ, however, we discover the real purpose of living. This life is just the introduction to eternity. This life is just the introduction to eternity. How we live this brief lifespan determines our eternal state. is powerful. The choices that we make here on earth will resonate for eternity. So here's the big idea of this passage. Don't miss what we need by being blinded by what we think we want. Our vision, our wants, are shaped by our world too often, right? But as we grow closer to Jesus and experience him and his word and his spirit and worship and, and his mission and, and his love and his grace and his transformation, our wants, our desires, our vision are being transformed and we start to want what he wants. It's incredible. So here's four things that this passage shows us that helps us to not miss the point. Number one, know the non-negotiable basics. Know the non-negotiable basics. This is what we call dogma, right? Like what is the very foundational beliefs as we read in God's word that like we can't negotiate on that? I remember a professor of mine said, uh, we know our dogma if we worship it, right? Now as followers of Jesus, the only thing we should ever worship is God. Everything else is just gravy on the side, Right? We're frosting on the cake, right? However you want it. But the real thing that we worship is God. So our, our idea of God has to be deeply rooted in his word. We have to know who God is. I have a friend, a pastor friend of mine, he'd always say, don't major in the minors and minor in the majors. So often we get so stuck in the, in the mire of little preferential stylistic things that we, we cannibalize each other. 
We, hurt, we, we, we literally bash each other, we drag each other through the mud just to make ourselves look better, just to make us feel more justified. And, and these are things like style of worship or, 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 or you know, expressions of the Spirit or, or, or what we wear to church or, or things like that, right? There's so many things that we, that we I've, been, I've been a part of churches my whole life and sometimes it hurts so bad at how people destroy each other over the minors. We major in the minors. But then when it really comes important, well, hey, God is whoever you want God to be. There's many paths to heaven. There's many, you know, so like we minor in the majors and we major in the minors. And that's a really, really dangerous place to be. We need to, there is a tension between pursuing unity and pursuing purity, right? We can't split over every little thing, but we also can't constantly, you know, just accept everything. We have to walk this tension between unity and purity, grace and truth. But the thing is, we have to continually learn. And that's the next thing, is constantly learn. So often, I, I meet people that are just disenfranchised in their faith, and they're like, well, I don't know where God's at. I don't hear him. I don't sense him. I don't see this. Well, how much do you pursue him? How much do you create the space for God to reveal himself in your life? How much time do you spend in that relationship? Well, I haven't read my Bible in years. I, haven't, I don't go to church anymore. I don't do this. I don't do that, right? If Nicole and I stopped hanging out, if we stopped talking, if we stopped dating, if we stopped having fun together, if we stopped communicating, what would that mean for our relationship? Our relationship with God is just like any other relationship. Are we feeding that relationship? I always go back to Feed the Dog series that Drew did years ago. What we feed grows, what we starve dies. If we want a robust faith, we have to feed it. If we want to be spiritually healthy, if we want to, to, to grow in that, we have to feed that faith. That's why it says we follow Jesus. Look in this passage. The disciples follow Jesus, and step by step, he is revealing himself. He's instructing them. He is challenging them. He is encouraging them step by step along the way. If we want to have more of a robust life, and, and not just spiritually. I'm, I'm, I am a poster child of when Jason does life according to Jason, it sucks. It sucks. I make a mess of it. I, I, for example, when I was in high school, I did, man, it was King Jason, man. It was all about me. Everything was about me. And you know what? I hated my life. I wanted out. I always tell the story about driving 90 miles an hour on gravel roads at one o'clock in the morning in Nebraska. And I would let go of the steering wheel, say, who would even care if I was gone? I saw what my sinful self wanted me to see. And that's what it wanted me. It wanted me in the ditch, dead. God wants us to pursue him at 90 miles an hour. God wants our hearts. He loves us. He gave his life for us. We need to grow in our understanding and in our faith. It's not just have more faith, have more faith. Yeah, have more faith, but also grow in our understanding. And then times we're so like, but I don't understand it. Well, have more faith, right? There's this thing called knowing and following that work together in harmony. Sometimes we may not feel like it, but we just need to do it. Sometimes we need to allow God to just meet us in our disbelief. And then third, 
family that plays together stays together, right? A family that works together plays together. Join in with Jesus' mission. Jesus didn't just say, I'm going to die for you so that you can just go do whatever you want and then meet me in heaven when it's all said and done, right? He says, no, I am good, and my mission is good, and it's going to be crazy, and you're going to wonder what in the world's going on, and, but you're going to be experiencing things that you never thought you would experience. And the goodness of God's mission is way better than the pain of the circumstances in the moment. A lot of times we give up on Jesus because we're not investing in his mission, and guess what? We get bored. We're kind of like, eh, I don't need that. I'm giving up on that, right? Jesus didn't say, I give you the keys of authority, just to leave them in your wallet. He says, get them out. Let the Spirit indwells inside of us, so now go do something with it. The exegetical commentary says this, it's not Peter's task to make the church safe and secure or to ensure its existence. Rather, it's Peter's task to keep the church true to its mission, which is to witness to the Messiah. That's what the church is here for. In the face of doubt, accusation, hatred, plotting, and more, Jesus doesn't run away and hide. He doesn't say, okay, disciples, come here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you in this cave, and we're gonna just going to have our little fun time together. And then when we die, good luck, world. He doesn't isolate us. He doesn't call the salt and light to hide under a basket, right? He says, this is crazy, but let's get out there. Let's go be light and salt in a dark and tasteless world. He wants his followers to follow him and to live out his compassion, his love, his grace, his truth, his salvation, and more. We need to follow. So know the non-negotiable basics, constantly learn, get involved with Jesus' mission, and last, following Jesus requires an eternal perspective. If we only see what we want to see, I just wasted 35 minutes of your time because it sounds like craziness. <laughs> and you're going to say, this guy is off his rocker. I don't get it, right? But if we have an eternal perspective, if we're like Peter and we allow God the Father and the Spirit to open our eyes through his word to, to see the real Jesus, he reveals the centrality of the cross and denial of self on his mission. It's interesting because Peter sees who Jesus is, but as soon as he sees the cross, he's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I don't know about this, right? It's crucial to remember that when Jesus is Lord, if we're in him, suffering is temporary. Suffering is temporary, but the glory of God is forever and eternal. My youth pastor who broke his neck in um, a football game, a lot of you have heard me share about him before, uh, 1983, he was a, uh, a 17, 18-year-old senior in high school, snaps his neck in the championship game of his football uh, season last year, last game of his career, right? He just had to go, you know, 40 more minutes without getting injured and opening kickoff, he snaps his neck and is, is paralyzed for the rest of his life. He says that is the second best day of his life because... It showed him his need for God. Second only to when he gave his life to Jesus as a kid. And I'm telling you what, the guy is now 57, and he's still saying the same thing. 
he's still saying the same thing because he, and, and the message of his life is is uh, uh, was it 2 Corinthians 4.18, set your eyes not what's seen, but what's unseen. For what's seen is temporary, what's unseen is eternal. And then everything he would ever sign was think eternally. And that's coming from a guy who would write like this, right? I think that says think eternally, right? He means it. He knows Jesus. He follows him every day as he's pushing in his wheelchair, right? Suffering is circumstantial and temporary. But glory in heaven, the glory of the Father in heaven is going to be forever. This is going to be like a blink in the eye, blink of an eye when it's all said and done. Denial of self isn't natural, but it's where we find true freedom now and forever. So moving from belief to action, knowing to doing. One simple thing, ask ourselves, what is the point of my life? What's the point? Why am I here? Why am I living, breathing? Why am I standing right here, right now? Why do I work where I work? Why am I married to who I'm married to? Why am I you know, a part of this family? Why, why do I have the friends? Like, why am I here? What is the point of my life? It's like, Matthew, it's like Jesus said in Matthew 16, 21. From that point on, Jesus turned to Jerusalem. He was a man on a mission. Are we men, women, boys, girls on a mission? Are we just little monkeys that dance for the world? Are we just, oh, what a good little performance you gave. Is that what we're shooting for? Or is, do we have an audience of one? Do we have a savior of one? Are we living for and from and to and through him every day of our lives? So it's appropriate. I know this is really heavy. <laughs> Some of you, this is your first time here. Um, welcome. <laughs> It's really appropriate that we're celebrating baptism today. There's nothing magical or mystical about baptism. We don't even have membership in the greenhouse, so it's not being baptized into the church, Little C Church. It's being baptized into Jesus. It's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation. It's when people say, I have experienced the goodness of God. I have been saved from the sin of my past. I am buried. I am dead to that sin, and I have received new life. I am transformed into this new lease on life now and forever. And it's a way to tell the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a way of experiencing and demonstrating the goodness that, yes, he paid for my sins, but he gives me new life. The old is gone. All things have made, been made new. And so I love that, that this morning we get to celebrate that testimony of five people. And you're going to hear their stories. We're going to, in, in just a second, we're going we're gonna to have one last song, and then we're just going to head down the stair and head out there. And we have a, a really fancy baptismal font there. Um, it's, 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 it's nice. It's galvanized. So there we go. But, uh, but no, it, the beautiful thing is, is that the, the beauty is not the tank. The beauty is not the water. The beauty is the meaning and the symbolism behind that. The words that are spoken, the words that you're hearing, I pray that it touches our heart. No matter who we are, no matter what we believe, no matter where we're at, I pray that we see the goodness of Jesus from this passage. It's who he is. It's what he came to do. Amen? Let's pray. We're going to have one more song, and then we'll, we'll head downstairs. God, we thank you so much for sending us your son, for coming into your own creation. God, we always say you just didn't give us a, uh, a list of do's and don'ts and say, good luck, I'll see you in a while. Instead, you came before us, you're here with us, 
and you'll be here forever. God, I pray that we would answer that call to follow you. God, as we, as we see in this passage, help us to see who you are, see what you've done, see what you want to do in us, and, and, and live out what you want to do through us. God, you do this out of love for us, just like you had compassion from your gut. Your gut turned when you saw the hunger, the brokenness of your creation. It didn't sit right with you. And that's why you came to save us, to transform us, to set us free now and forever. God, I pray that as we close out with this song and then head downstairs and hear the stories of those, God, I pray that, that you would just work in our hearts and our minds. God, if we know you, that we'd be encouraged, that we'd be challenged. God, if, we, if, if you're new to us, God, I pray that we could see you in a way that would be compelling, that we would want to give our lives wholly to you. God, that we would follow you from this point on. God, if anybody this morning, if they want to give their lives to you, God, I pray that, that uh, they would take that step, that find us afterwards and just spend time talking to you, to surrender their lives to you and to enter into that new relationship, that new mission, that new identity. God, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us first. We pray these things in your name. Amen.